You're listening to In Good Company with Hugh Byrne, a podcast about living consciously, making healthy choices, cultivating the power of awareness, and bringing mindfulness to our work and our lives. Our guest today is Terry Richards. Terry is the president of the National Democratic Club in Washington, D.C. Just a little bit of background on the club. It has over 100 members of Congress. Terry is the youngest president of the club in at least 60 years. As his day job, as it were, the legislative affairs advisor with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. So we'll talk too about juggling those two jobs and maybe other ones that he has that he'd like to tell us about. Welcome, Terry, and I'd love for you to begin just by telling us a little bit about how you came to the role that you're in now, anything that you'd like to share about kind of your life journey and your work history. The way I look at my sort of journey to how I got to this point is a series of, I almost consider them lucky breaks in a way, where such a minor decision seemingly at the time, had such a profound impact to how I've gotten to where I am now. I started here in Washington. Actually, I've lived here since 1988. I'm as close to a D.C. native as you can get without actually having physically been born here and have always just had this interest in politics. As I often tell people, I knew what I wanted to be since January 20th, 1993, which for historians is the first inauguration of Bill Clinton. And I can distinctly remember watching that on TV going, I want to do that. Do you want to be president? I want to be president of the United States. (laughs) All right. Um, right. I've since settled. But, you know, over time, it went from being president of the United States to realizing that it's a love for politics, which is kind of hard to escape in this town. Yeah. And everything I did was in pursuit of that goal uh. of learning more and more as I could about the political system. Went to school in New Orleans for undergrad at Xavier University of Louisiana. And while I was there, started a number of internships, both for the New Orleans City Council and for members of Congress. Mm. One in particular in the summer of 05 was for the member from that area, former Congressman William Jefferson. And I was entering my senior semester, did the internship, came back to school in August of 2005 into New Orleans, started my last semester of my senior year on a mm. Monday. By the following Monday, city was flooded, yeah. August 29th, when Hurricane Katrina Katrina came through. Yep. And for me, I was faced with a choice. Mm-hmm. I could either A, come back home, wait for the school to reopen, hang out, or go to some other university, try to finish off there. I spent so much time at that one school, I was determined to finish at that school. And so while I was just killing time waiting for the school to reopen, I called my old boss up and said, look, I know you all need help. I know you all need resources. Can I come back as an intern? They said, we'll do you one better. We'll hire you. And that got me my first paid position on Capitol Hill. And so I always look back on Hurricane Katrina, sort of that, in a way, almost pivotal moment for me, because that's what really started me down this course Mm. of spending another five years on Capitol Hill. It's yeah. where I got to be able to run two congressional re-election campaigns mm. and what eventually led me to the Department of Commerce, um, where I spent four years as a senior advisor for legislative intergovernmental affairs, and where I then decided to become very interested in the National Democratic Club. Um, for the longest time, the club was this sort of mysterious place to me. Um, I'd been taken there a couple of times by the people I'd worked for, and the club always struck me as this place of where members of Congress go, where lobbyists and the trade association reps are going. Right. Not a place for me, I'm just the guy that answers at the time, answers the phones or comes up with an idea for a bill and tries to push that forward. I'm just another one of the number of federal employees in the system. This is not my club. But the more I started doing research on it, the more I realized I need to build a network in this town. I've lived here for so long. I've done a lot to this point. But if I want to get any further, I need a network. And where can I get that network? I started to look at the club. And so I joined the National Democratic Club in September of 2011, just looking to build that professional network. 
what I've since gotten over the last six or seven years is something, is an experience I never could have anticipated. It went from being a professional network place, a place for me to build and get to know people to very much my second home and building connections that are more than just, these are people that are gonna help me get another job. These are people that are gonna do more than help me get access to other events and other venues. These are people that are gonna stay with me and be my supporters from now until the end. And so I've always taken that to heart. In 2014, I took such an interest that the executives of the club at the time, getting ready to run for election, decided we want to put you on the board. There's a recognition that I certainly share that the club membership that we have is certainly an older subset mm-hmm. and we need to get younger. And how do we do that? By encouraging mm-hmm. more young people to join and putting somebody of youth on our board, on our executive committee. And so they selected me to run for a position on the board of directors, which I won in 2014. And then again, another series of lucky breaks. The club secretary at the time, who had just gotten elected, had fallen ill and had to resign. So now there's a spot on the executive committee. They nominated me to fill that spot. So from being a board member just three months later to becoming now the club secretary. And that is really what gave me the position, the platform to launch the campaign that I launched two years ago to become the president. It was certainly not an easy decision, and it was certainly not an easy campaign, as it was referenced. This was the first time in 30 years Mm -hmm. there had ever been a contested election for the presidency of the club. For so much of the time, as with most private clubs, it's just a position that people hold. They come in as one thing and just keep ascending until eventually they become president. They do their two years. They go away. Nobody ever has really challenged that order. I was approached by some members who said, we don't like the direction of the club, and we don't like the potential direction of the person who was considered the heir apparent to the presidency. It puts me in a very difficult spot because this is somebody I'm a part of the administration with, somebody I developed a friendship with. And so conflicted, I asked the members, well, I, I understand your concerns. What do you want me to do? Well, if you run, we'll support you. But if this other person wins, we quit. Hmm. Hearing that and hearing that there were members ready to walk out on our club really affected me and forced me to almost reluctantly make the choice to run. I'd love to talk about your love of politics. Personally, I've also have a love of politics. I kind of come from a different angle on it. From probably the age of 17 or 18, I've been very interested, maybe younger than that as well, but certainly in those years, very interested in political processes. And I ultimately... You know, I did a law degree and taught law in London. But when I came here, I did a doctorate in political science. And so very interested in political movements, political processes, all Mm. of that. But haven't been involved very much at all in the electoral side, more on the activist side, more beaten on the doors rather than inside and working on the bills, etc. But I've been very, very interested in that process as well. And so what I want to talk a little bit about is just for you, talk a little bit more about your love of politics. What is it about politics that really activates you, that kind of inspires you? Well, you know, initially, now I go back to, you know, again, January 20th, 1993. When I think back on what it was then, it was sort of more the pageantry of it. You know, you're watching this presidential inauguration, you're seeing the fanfare behind it, and you're thinking, somebody standing on that center stage, basking in the glow and and adoration of all of these people, who wouldn't love that? but over time, it, it grew more into what you were saying, the machinations, the mechanics behind the process. I always make the distinction between policy and politics. Mm-hmm. There's one thing to be on the Hill and interested in writing a bill. And the mechanics behind that are certainly one very important skill. But for me, it's always, how can I identify somebody that I can get behind 
to run for office? Mm -hmm. Who do I need to talk to to put together a formidable campaign? Who are the key players in any one area? And if we go here, who do we need to talk to on A, on Avenue A? Who do we need to talk to on Avenue B? Who are the neighborhood people? Who yeah. are the lower level subdivision people? Who do we need to put together to form a really strong team? And then from that too, what are the words we need to use? What are the ways of phrasing the platform? Because for me, there's always, you could say hope and change in 20 different ways, and it speaks yeah. to 20 different people. How do you select those words that you're using in the press release? Yeah. How do you select the venues for the events? So for me, that's always been sort of the, what I've really loved. It's almost the, the chess match yeah. more than anything else. And for me, it's campaigning has always been, in the end, my key love. I, I've loved Beyond the Hill. I thought it was great. But the best experiences I've ever had were running campaigns. Was it the, the contact with the voters? Was it the human piece or was it more the chess, you know, the puzzle of putting the team together and, or was it some combination of those? What energized you most? You know, I always laugh at myself because for somebody who loves campaigning, I am very much an introvert. Mm. So it's never so much the people. Yes, certainly the, 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 the contact with the voter is yeah. enlivening, but it's not for me the driver. It's almost yeah. that psychology behind it. How can I motivate them to get to the poll? And what do we need to do to do it? When I was working in New Orleans on two congressional reelection campaigns, you know, for me, probably the biggest challenge that I'd love to take on was we were running campaigns post-Katrina. We were the first set of campaigns to be run in the state after the storm. Well, how do you run a congressional reelection campaign when 80% of your constituency is not even in your district anymore? How do you reach your voters when they're not in your district? They're actually in Houston. Yeah. They're in Dallas. They're yeah. in San Antonio. They're everywhere else but yeah. home. Yeah. And then also, too, how do you get them to focus on that election when they're more focused on, how am I going to get back home? How am I going to rebuild my life? And for me, the 06 campaign in particular was probably the most fun I've ever had mm. in politics, just trying to come up with ways to motivate people, to get them to focus, to get them to buy in. And then I get to election night, and as I tell people, that's a rush. There is no rival to it. Mm -hmm. To know you're going to wake up one morning, and one of two things is going to happen by the end of the day. Right. And it's completely and totally out of your control. That feeling is what I've always tried to chase. A lot of our exploration in this podcast and a lot of my work is about how we train ourselves to be able to be resilient in difficult circumstances, how we train ourselves through awareness, through practices, inner practices, if you like. If it turns out the voters say thumbs down to you in this election, how do you deal with that without getting depressed, despairing, overwhelmed, whatever the reaction might be? December 2008, the way Louisiana does their campaigns is there's an election and then there's a runoff. In 2008, we were, we were super confident we were going to win re-election. The way the calendar shaped out, we, our election day was going to fall, the runoff election day was going to fall on the same night that Barack Obama was heading up the ticket for the first time. That's going to drive voters to the polls. We've got this, was our thought. But we had a hurricane come through that pushed our voting date back another month. The end result, we ended up losing our re-election campaign by about 500 votes. I remember I was in D.C. the night that happened because I'd finished up my run with the primary. And it was, to this day still, one of the saddest nights of my life. I just remember it just being an absolute wreck. I was in tears the mm -hmm. whole ride home. I'd never had this happen to me before. And in the back of my mind, you're always thinking, okay, if only I had done X or Y, we could have won this campaign. We could have won this race. There was no reason we should have lost. And I'm also thinking, too, okay, where's my next check going to come from? You know, how do I rebuild after this? I'd invested so much into yeah. this 
you always knew it had to end at some point. You just never thought right then and there. What I took from that experience and the depression that followed for probably about a week after, just inconsolable for about a week, is I'm not the first person this has happened to. Mm-hmm. The people that, have happened, that this has happened to before me have all bounced back. I could sit here and be sad for a week or for a month. It's not really going to solve the problem. I need to find a way to build my next job, to make a case for wherever I'm going to land next, to provide. Thankfully, at the time, I didn't have a family and I was living at home, but to sort of build a nest egg for myself to keep going. So while it'd be very easy for me to stay here where I am and just weep, it's not to say grow up, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, if this has happened to other people and they've come out of this, there's no reason I can't either. Mm-hmm. And to always take from that, I've always learned now to take a step back from a situation. If it looks like it's going to be daunting or something that for me is an unknown, yeah. is to take that step back and realize that there aren't very many anymore new situations. Maybe new players, new ways of looking at it, new minor differences. But it's always the same scenario in a lot of cases. It's the same scenario that so many people before me have gone through. If they've gone through it and come out okay, there's no reason to think I can't either. Bouncing off of that and just coming to your own where you are right now, and I want to come back in a couple of minutes to, to the National Democratic Club and that process that you are involved in. But just kind of looking ahead a little bit, do you have a, a sense? I mean, it seems like you have running in your blood, running for some office in your blood. I'm I'm not hearing that this is necessarily the end of the road for you, that this is something that you're doing, but I mean that you're obviously very involved in and very care very much about. But you're also looking at, you were saying before, you know, thinking about running for president, maybe not president of the United States now, but do do you see a particular direction that you want to go in? And what would you want to accomplish in that role? What would you want to see happen or help to mm. make happen? You know, while at the time running for president of the United States and being that guy on the ticket, having his name on the ballot was for me something that I wanted to do over the years and through experiences, I've come to realize being the name on the ballot is great for some people. Not for me. Just not for me. I am much happier being the guy behind the candidate. I'm much happier being the guy that looks at a crowd of people, looks at a stack of resumes and tries to figure out who is really the best fit for what I want to do. Who can I really get behind and win with? Who has the best ideas? Who is the best suited to forward for what for me is still very much a progressive agenda? I'm more interested now in trying to find people to forward the, not even the the agenda so much of the party, but the ideas behind what the party stands for. You know, I'm looking at the the, the uh, political system right now, and I'm seeing there, there's an old expression, you know, anybody can get elected to Congress. It's the beauty of our democracy. Anybody can get elected to Congress. The problem is, particularly these last few elections, anybody has gotten elected to Congress. And I'm looking, and you know, the people I see filling some of these offices may not always be the best fit, but it's because they wanted their name on the ballot. Yeah. They ran, and God bless the voters, send them to Washington. And they're, in lot, they're a lot less interested in the ideas of the party for which they were elected on and more interested in themselves. For me, it's more, how can I find the people that are going to further the interests of the party or the ideals for which the party stands on? And I'm more content being that guy back there, crafting the strategy, than the one who's now having to figure out a way to be everybody to everybody. You speak of a, a progressive agenda. What's at the bottom of that? What are the few key elements of what a progressive agenda means to you? I mean, what, where does it touch you on a heart level? What do you care about most deeply about the progressive agenda? For me, it's a lot broader than the singular issues. For me, it's more looking at 
one, a, a dynamic that's open to change, that's open to recognizing that what worked 50 years ago is not going to necessarily work today. There's no reason to talk about taking the phrase I hate the most in politics now, taking back our country, as if there's something that we've lost in all of this, or going back to the way we've done things. For me, I look at the progressive agenda as something that's open to change, open to accepting new and different ideas, more focused on innovation than repeating what may have worked before. The progressive agenda, which is more focused on the inclusion of all groups of people than the idea that we're going to take the top, what we determine to be the top 1% and work towards that. There's a recognition that so much of our economy today is fueled by the middle class, which seems to greatly escape the conservative agenda. I want to get back to that. I want to look for candidates that can fuel that idea that the middle class and those within that are really what are going to power this country going forward. You look at minority groups, for example, wrapped up within that. It's very easy sometimes to mistake or to just to simply assume that because they are my, a racial minority, they do not necessarily figure heavily into how our politics is shaped and how our economy is shaped. But I think, particularly as I've learned when I was at the Department of Commerce, Minority groups are, in fact, the bedrock of our economy. It's reminding people about that, mm -hmm. that I see within the progressive agenda, that I don't necessarily see anywhere else. And it's always interesting because for me, the economy was never a particular issue I was really all that interested in until I got to commerce. And while being at commerce, realizing that it's people who look like me, in a way, that really can shape the future of our country. When we talk about the global society, it's the minority groups, the minority businesses that are really pushing out and really exporting that are really more the globalized businesses than almost any other group here. And to me, that was extremely powerful, extremely interesting. I want to get back to that and focus in on those groups, focus in on bringing more people to the table that we may not have always thought about before. I just see so much stagnation on one side of the aisle that I don't see on the other. And that, for me, is where my focus is. Was there anything in your, in your background, in your upbringing, that really brought to the fore that interest in, in progressive politics, a progressive agenda, inclusion, or the other things that you're talking about? So I was pointed to two key points. The day I became a Democrat and the day I realized the power of working for people and recognizing there's a wide range of experiences and not everything is always what it seems. The day I became a Democrat, up until probably about eight years of age, I'm almost certain I was a Republican. I remember going through the 92 campaign, and I was pulling hard for George H.W. Bush. Really, to this day, I, I don't know why. But I remember one simple thing. I remember asking my father, oddly enough, for a Super Nintendo. My dad looked at me and went, well, son, do you know why you don't have a Super Nintendo? Well, no, dad, why? George Bush. Oddly enough, from that moment, I became a Democrat. I still never got the Super Nintendo, but I've been a Democrat ever since. So George Bush took your Nintendo. <laughs> that's, that's what, basically, because of the recession that happened during the last year of his presidency and such. Okay, now I see where the connection is. But at the time, it's like, I don't have a Super Nintendo. He's just told me why I don't have something and who's to blame for it. I'm a Democrat. But what really, really spoke to me was, the, again, working for a member from a hurricane-ravaged district mm. where there are so many people in need of something so many people in need of either a job or just some sort of assistance because of something that happened that was not their fault. And I remember hearing so much during the debate, well, you know, we don't necessarily want to help rebuild New Orleans. They should have known better than to build in a floodplain. We don't want to add to unemployment insurance 
because people who are unemployed, well, they're just lazy. And I always think back to that district and I think, well, no, these people didn't have a job because the company they worked for, the business they worked at, was wiped away. How is that their fault? And we're gonna deny them assistance? But even more than that, these people have children. Do you really wanna penalize the child of somebody who does not have something that we just assume people should have? What did the child do to deserve that? It's always thinking beyond the so-called grown-up in the room, that there's always somebody that that person is, that somebody is depending on somebody, the interdependence of that family unit. And it was just so disturbing to me going through the first year or so after the storm, and even hearing that there was some question about, are we going to rebuild New Orleans? Are we even going to do better levies? Are we even going to do these things that we need to build back an American city? And I see some of this now playing out, particularly in Puerto Rico. How is it there's even a question? And when I would hear the reasons back, well, they should have known, it just spoke even further to me and further entrenched myself in how I knew at that point I'm, I'm, I'm a card-carrying liberal. There's something many people feel, I think I put myself in this camp, that while we identify kind of the, the problematical things that are going on right now, particularly in the last year, but beyond that as well, kind of identify more with one party than another. We'd also say that the problems also go deeper than that, that there's something that's missing in terms of being able to speak to each other across the party lines, and that perhaps it's never really a, a zero-sum game or a zero, this is always right and this is always wrong. We see some of the more conservative politicians who've come out with, uh, in recent weeks, in, with, I believe, a great deal of integrity. I've watched in recent days Steve Schmidt, who mm. was a key strategist for John McCain's campaign in 2008, uh, coming out with extraordinarily powerful moral view. I mean, he talks about a coalition of the decent, mm -hmm. which I find a very powerful concept, which is basically to say, yes, there may be one party that's more identified with a progressive agenda and another with an agenda that perhaps I would term more a denial of reality or a denial of truth in climate change and so many other areas, that it's important as well that we be able to speak to each other and that perhaps the intense polarization mm -hmm. of recent years, there's something that we're all paying for that, that that's not necessarily an ideal thing, even for somebody who's strongly identified with a particular party. Would you want to see more of an ability, certainly perhaps a couple of decades ago, there was more of this and more of a, a sense of being able to speak to each other across party lines and across differences. Is that something that you see as something that is an ideal or something that could, should be worked for? And do you think it's even possible now? And what would have to happen to be able to, to move more in that direction? If you notice, up to now, up until probably the last few minutes, I haven't even used the word Democrat as the ideal that I subscribe to. I am a Democrat, but I also look at myself as sort of the pragmatic Democrat. It's the recognition that the progressive agenda is certainly one thing, and it's what I most identify with. But I also know there are people on or within the Republican Party, for example, that have a lot of good ideas that need to be incorporated. A lot of good things have come from that so-called conservative agenda. Particularly in globalization society, we look at 
NAFTA. During the campaign last year, it was very easy to subscribe a lot of what happened with NAFTA to the Clintons. And while the Democrats are the ones that forwarded this free trade agreement, it's all their fault, well, the reality is NAFTA was actually negotiated under George H.W. Bush. And I think very few people can really argue the economic benefits of that free trade agreement. But that was a conservative push, and one that I think was a very good idea at the time, and still do. We absolutely need to get back to that idea of two people in a room being able to speak to each other, regardless of what their label is next to their name. And I always hear the stories of back in the day, particularly this conversation about tax reform, how the last time we did tax reform, it was Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan in a room over drinks, and they hammered it out on their own. And I would love to see us get back to that. One of the things at the club that I saw was very powerful to me was if in June of this year, the night before the congressional baseball game, there was a shooting at the baseball field. Mm -hmm. There's all this question sometimes as to when that the two parties could ever come together over anything. But there was this shooting in the morning. That night with, at the club, there was a dinner between the two baseball teams. They came together to have a meal together the night before this game. And it was very powerful to see members who just 10 hours before had bullets you know, flying past their head and members who hadn't gathered around a table to have a good time as people. And I remember thinking, if we could only get back to that, do I think we can? That's a much harder question to answer. I go back to what I said before. The nice thing about our democracy is that anybody, in theory, can get elected to office. The problem is anybody has. And as society has gotten more polarized, our institutions have begun to reflect that. Because now that our institutions are beginning to reflect that, while I would love to see us get back there, I don't know that we will, certainly in my lifetime, or even in my son's lifetime. Because now I can feel these gaps, these canyons almost being very much ingrained into the institution itself. I look at how the Senate has changed their rules on a whim. You know, Harry Reid went yes. through the nuclear option. How did Mitch McConnell respond when he took the majority? He used the same thing. And I can almost feel that if we take back the Senate next year, we will respond in kind. You know, the theory of mutual destruction has been thrown out the window. And can we ever put that back together again? I would hope so. Sadly, I don't think so. What was your experience of, of running and how many, you know, what was that, that campaign like and how did it go? Obviously, you succeeded in that campaign and what was your platform? What were you pushing for? You've said a little bit about that, but maybe if you want to talk a bit more about that. So it was certainly a, a difficult campaign. You know, like I said, we are an organization whereby the order of things is extremely well respected and well regarded. We always, you know, people always want to observe the so-called natural order of things. Um, and so for me to, one, decide I wanted to run for president, I had to challenge not only somebody I considered at the time a friend, because it was somebody I'd worked with during the current administration, but also somebody who had been a 20-year member of the club. And here I am having just joined the club four or five years earlier. Somebody who was the sitting vice president, the known heir apparent, who had done everything and held every position within the, the organization at some point in time, to me, who just a couple of years prior was just a regular member. And not only just a regular member, but somebody who pays their own bill. There was no attachment for me to you know, the larger trade associations, the unions, a lobbying firm. I didn't have those connections, I was just me. And having to run that campaign, I said, how can I stand out from everybody else? I have a feeling that my opponent's gonna run on the fact that her name is her name, people know who she is. 
Well, that certainly works to her advantage in one sense, but as I learned just from the fact that people push me into the race, being known isn't always a good thing. So my question was, how can I stand out? And so I put together an entire platform. What were going to be my key priorities? What were my three core issues? And push that out to the membership. I developed a logo, put together a masthead, put together a mailing list, and every couple of weeks was sending out regular messages. I know we've all seen them at some point in time, those sometimes annoying updates that pop up in our inboxes looking for money, saying, urgent, you know, we're about to lose the campaign unless you do this. It gets people's attention. I fear there's no reason why I can't do that. And so we started sending out those, you know, we're seven days out from the election. Here are the things we need to remember. Here are the, here's why I'm running. Here is what I want to do. And what I found was people appreciate the fact that I was actually articulating why I wanted to be president. For so many other elections, the person who's been the president is just in it for the, what they're supposed to do. They come in, check over the books, do a quick look around the dining room, and that's the end of it for them. But you never really know what it is they want to do. For me, it was important to put out, this is what I want to do. And knowing that while we have 1,100 members, the number of members who actually vote is a lot smaller than that. Again, relying on my own past experience. When a small number of people vote, more often than not, it's always going to favor the known quantity hmm. or the known entity. I needed to figure out a way to change that and to get as many people involved in the election now than had been before. Having it be a contested election, thankfully, it did drum up a little more interest. But even harder still was the fact that the campaign was three months long and I'm still having to be in a room with this person that I'm running against for another three months because we're still on the executive committee together. And so we're still having to make decisions for the club that may or may not favor one candidate or the other, and particularly with a group of bylaws that are set up to favor the existing order. And so having to run against all of those issues and all those obstacles, I was in that club every night, talking to people, getting people to talk to other people, and then report back to me, what are they hearing? Who do I need to go talk to now? Whose hand do I need to shake? What can I say? What are their top priorities that I should start speaking to within the mailings that I'm sending out? And we get to the election, and it was a landslide in the end. You're doing this, and it sounds very much like a full-time job, but it's not your full-time job. You have a job at the Department of Home Homeland Security as a legislative affairs advisor. What's it like to, to do maybe two full-time jobs as well as having a family and other things maybe you haven't talked about? How do you balance those? It has certainly been a struggle, particularly because being president of the club, for the most part, isn't always a full-time job. But for me, the idea is I had to convince these people to vote for me and invest confidence in me, so I probably take it, I probably have taken on a lot more than I reasonably should have to begin with, but again, the idea that they invested in me, I'm not gonna let their investment fall. The way I've done it, for the most part, is just taking advantage of my weekends. I mean, something as simple as that. I'm running from Monday through Friday, but once I get to Friday night, focusing in on where am I right now, focusing on, I'm here with my son, then that's the where I'm focusing in on, to focus in on the moment that I'm in, yeah. as opposed to trying to figure out a way of, okay, well, I'm here with my son, but I've got to send off this email right, to the right. secretary. I've got to send off this email to, to the club. No, it's, I'm here. Let me be here. And particularly being with my son has given me sort of that release to, no, don't, you cannot bother me with anything like this right now. It's my family time. So it sounds like that that's a, that's a powerful support to you to really be present with what you're doing and, and not multitasking, as it were, across different parts of your life at the same time. So, so thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you today, Terry Richards, President of the National Democratic Club. 
Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you.